0: Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Lori Gerber. Um, here with another episode of anti-aging unraveled and I'm really happy to bring you some more information tonight. Um, I didn't think we'd be talking about COVID again, but, um, at that we are. So I wanted to bring you some, some fact, fiction, myth busting information on post COVID syndrome, the vaccine, um, some of the, how the vaccine is made, what the, you know, what the side effects profile really is and the dangers that are out there. So I hope to answer a lot of questions. My goal tonight is not to dissuade or um, persuade anybody to do a vaccination or to not vaccinate. I really just want to get the information out there. I think uh, it's our duty to get the correct information out there, and then you can decide whatever is best for you and your family. And I'm, I'm open to questions as always at um, info at So feel free to email me during the show. Um, or at a later date, you can also go onto my website, which is mydrlori.com. And we can give you some more information that's already listed on our website. And also there's a link to be able to message me on there as well. I do check on my Instagram and Facebook feeds and I can answer stuff on there if you, if that's preferable to you, or you can just um, message me um, through those platforms. So I think the first thing that we're going to do tonight and, 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 we'll be doing this as a three-part series. I'm pretty sure I'll have a guest on next week um, to discuss the variants and how they are affecting everything. But the first thing I wanna talk about is the type of vaccinations. And um, like many people, I was very intrigued by mRNA vaccines and and how this vaccine was gonna present itself and how it was gonna be successful. And I think what there's one thing to note is mRNA vaccines um, are are not really novel. We have used them before. We've been, been producing them for other different viral strains. And it's it's genetic material from the virus. It's just an mRNA that gives our cells instructions for how to make a harmless protein that's unique to that virus, which is the spike protein. And after our cells do this, they actually destroy them with genetic material that is provided in the vaccination. So the mRNA, the messenger that is brought into your cell is is genetically engineered it's it's made to give your cells instructions it tells your body to make this s protein which is really what we call a spike protein which is really how it invades our cells and that is how we start to make antibodies or or immune complexes to this virus um the spike protein is that little thing that you see sticking out of the coronavirus in those pictures on tv and really they're very specific for the bug so as that changes And as we get new mutations and new variants, we're gonna be creating new um, mRNA or other vector vaccines, which we'll talk about, that are gonna go into um, this new, that are gonna attach these new spike proteins or they're gonna be specific for these new spike proteins. So mRNA vaccines are really just the mRNA material and a lipid layer to help it get introduced into the cell. And like I said, the antibodies are produced, um, they'll fight the virus, and then immediately, that mRNA is broken down in your body. It never enters the nucleus of your cell, and it never actually gets to the part where your DNA is is in your nucleus. So it really doesn't incorporate itself into your own natural DNA. It's giving your body what we call an mRNA code to make an antibody, too. And both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines use this mRNA technology. And I'm going to briefly review... Um, what most of us already know, but its effectiveness, and most of this effectiveness is to the alpha and beta strains, which were the first two strains that were, um, that were that were hitting the United States and Europe, um, that we did the most studies on, and so one study showed a ninety-four percent effective rate on symptomatic infected people, with no evidence of previous COVID nineteen and um, all diverse race, age, sex, ethnicities. However, the efficacy drops. With older people, so in the age 65 or older, it drops down to 86.4%. Another study by the CDC in late March, it had almost 4,000 3950 healthcare workers and um, first responders. That was shown to be 90% effective on immediate immunization. So at least 14 days after the second dose of vaccination in real world conditions. So obviously being exposed um, consistently to COVID. So. You know we know that the vaccinations were successful we know that they were successful in present pre- preventing severe disease so let's talk about modernas for a second we know that it was good against alpha and beta and they are studying right now the efficacy against delta and it seems to be very similar um, to pfizer's efficacy and and really what we're seeing now that delta has been um, out there and around that it's probably covering about 80 um, percent so there's about 20 percent um, breakthrough rate, but the people that are getting sick are not getting sick with as serious as disease, right? So the, it's more cold flu symptoms, um, no real fever, body aches, it's more sore throat, stuffy nose, and that kind of symptom. So that's where we're going to come into a problem as this new variant comes into play. The symptoms are very different, and they're going to mimic the common cold, um, which is going to lead people to believe this is not COVID, okay? Um so I think that that's really important. We are doing studies right now on that Delta variant, which is what was first seen in India. Um, there are some studies that have not been peer reviewed yet, but they're out there that show about an 88% effectiveness against a symptomatic disease and 96% effective against hospitalization, again, for these mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. Um, not peer reviewed, but the data is um, out there and is, is obviously they'll be published shortly. So. Um, Let's talk about some rare side effects of mRNA vaccines, and we're going to dispel some myths too about them later. But I think the biggest thing is that we have to wait 15 to 30 minutes for it to check for an anaphylactic reaction, right? We're checking to see if somebody ends up getting shortness of breath, where they can't, you know, they can't breathe, their throat is closing, um, where it is responsive to an EpiPen. That is why we wait 15 to 30 minutes, depending on your um, sensitivity, for the shot to see if you have any reaction. Um, so that is, that is one thing to just take note. You know, there are obviously issues with the MRNA vaccine. Um, the other one, which has come out more recently would be the reports of heart inflammation in young adults. And I think it's really important to understand that this inflammation that happens from the vaccination is typical, right? We want this extreme, uh, immune response. And 95% of the kids that are gonna get this pericarditis or this inflammatory response, they're gonna get better on their own. And this, cause it's again, it's a natural process. And as the antibodies level themselves off and that inflammation isn't as high, the symptoms go away. So yes, while there is the, the, um, the, the symptomatology out there of the side effect profile, um, I would say that it's not something that should preclude you from getting the vaccination for your kids. Now, obviously if you have somebody that has um, a heart disease, a heart problem, any kind of genetic issues, um, they're prone to inflammation, you wanna pre-treat and do things to keep the inflammation to a low enough level. So we're gonna talk about that as well. The second type of vaccine um, is called a vector vaccine. And a vector just means that a piece of a, um, what we call an adenovirus, and we use a chimpanzee adenovirus, and we actually make a circle and we leave a hole in it. And then we fill in that DNA. With what we want to copy and what we're trying to copy is this s protein right so they take it's a modified chimpanzee adenovirus so it can get into the cell but it can't replicate inside it's called replication deficient and we take this and we take that mrna or sorry that s, s- like um coding, and we attach that inside this adenovirus and what happens is that's able to get into our cell again not replicate but our body sees that and it makes antibodies to it. So again, you're making antibodies to this piece of spike protein that is very specific for the buck. That's all we're doing. And then the adenovirus isn't able to make you sick because it's not able to replicate and it's broken down um, as well. So those vectors will keep you um, from getting sick and you break down the adenovirus and don't get sick from the adenovirus at all. Um have been used for a long time, so it's not a novel way to get something into the cell. And that would be a J and J vaccine, would be an example of that. So, you know, let's let's talk about a little bit of the side effects of J and J vaccine. So again, we're talking about an inflammatory response. So when the body sees this thing as being foreign, it's going to respond and react. And when it does that, you're going to get this massive inflammation and antibody production. So there's something called Guillain-Barre, which is a neurologic disorder, um, which has been reported in a number of vaccination, small number of vaccination recipients, but more commonly um, we were seeing the potential for blood clotting disorder. Um, again, we're talking about mostly women, mostly people that are prone to clotting anyway, because they have hormonal, um, women have way more hormones than estrogen. And again, we were talking about this inflammatory response. So let's say you've gut issues, immune, um auto autoimmune inflammatory these are things that put you at a higher risk for these vaccinations and we need to pre-treat in my opinion before you get vaccinated and post-treat so we're trying to get the body in it in a range that is going to be very accepting to this inflammatory position how do we do that well there's glutathione there's quercetin there's silver there's biocidin um there's vitamin c and we're going to kind of incorporate these into your routine to get the body calmed down. We want to make sure that it's, and we get the gut healed with glutamine so that the body doesn't have this massive inflammation response. Um, okay, so I talked about the Pfizer and Moderna with the heart inflammation in young kids. We talked about the blood clotting disorder for um, the uh, J&J. Let's talk briefly about um, the inflammation, how the light switch gets turned on. And when this light switch gets turned on, we really, it's again, it's like a roller coaster that you can't stop. So this is, this is key, again, to that pre-treatment and post-treatment. And my recommendation for people that are thinking about if this vaccine is right for them, you think about, do I have gut disorder? Do I have inflammation in my body? Do I have a, pre, um, a predisposition to having sensitivities to foods and allergies to things? Do I have a, um, what I would call an autoimmune process going on in your body? And if you don't know, you can get labs to check some of that out. We can do symptom review lists very simply. And we can pre-treat, right? We get you on things that are gonna keep that light switch turned off so that when it gets turned on, it doesn't get turned on permanently. So the third type of vaccine is um, what we would call um, a protein subunit vaccine. And and this hasn't hit the market yet. It's gonna be by Novavax. And it basically is, is just what it sounds like. It's literally a piece of the S protein that your body sees so it's like an inactivated s protein that comes in contact with your cell and your body makes an antibody to it and you get rid of the s protein when you see it the next time it literally just stimulates the immune system i um, just in a little bit of a different form and it's just a small part of the virus so it's actually giving you just that small s protein so that is it. And Novavax um, has done some data on that as well and says that it's 90% effective against lab confirmed symptomatic infection and 100% successful against moderate and severe disease in phase three trials. So again, keeping you from getting hospitalized, very effective for symptom, just to reduce symptomatology. And it is being tested right now on um, some of the Delta um, strains. But again, if you can change that S protein relatively simply, you could get boosters to this as well um but this was originally tested on us us and mexico alpha um, strain predominantly and they're and like i said they're doing data on the delta right now so they're also two doses three weeks apart um trying to get it indicated for 18 year olds to 84 year olds so this clinical trial it should be done relatively soon and that should be a third way that you can get your vaccine so let's Let's kind of talk about, and, and to me, it's about vaccination and is it correlation or is there causation? You can, what, can we basically say that something is creating something? And I think what we need to understand is we're trying to not get sick, right? It's not a matter of politics or civil rights, or it's a matter of not getting sick and not getting the people around you sick and take that a step further not getting other nations sick or other worlds sick. So if you can put that in perspective, once I have so many long haulers right now that really can't get better. And they would give anything to have not had COVID, right? Because they, they can't get better. And there's so many things that are caused by this COVID-19 bug. If we can keep you from getting that infection, I, just from the data that I've been researching and the patients that I've been getting, I will tell you it's better to prevent it than to be fighting it after you have the bug why well we know that covid 19 and long haul syndrome is mostly due to what we call monocyte activation by the spike protein and the spike protein is what's getting into your cell and infecting your cell and it's very similar to something that we call sirs which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome and sirs is also um, similar to chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis it's also known as and mass cell activation which is cells that really just want to produce histamine. They're histamine releasers, again, that allergy, inflammation. And when COVID gets in there, we know it turns on this light switch. The problem is, is we're finding that COVID doesn't always leave the system. So yes, your body might find it, but COVID's very good at hiding and getting into what we would call um, pockets or cavities and, and hiding in places where your body can't find it. And with my long haulers, you know, we're thinking that it's about one in 10 people right now. And if you can avoid the one in 10 and not get COVID, the side effect again of the vaccine that we're gonna talk about, most of them are myths. And if you have any worry, then you pre-treat, but it's much harder to get rid of the COVID vaccine or the COVID um, bug if you have these predisposing factors anyway. So you don't want to get COVID-19. Um, my patients complain of fatigue. Fatigue is really bad. Brain fog, muscle and joint pain, sleep disturbances, migraines, chest pains are a big one um, with that kind of um, irregularity or like crackly chest, skin rashes on the hands and legs, um, new sensitivity to taste and smell, we know loss of taste and smell, and what we call dysautonomia which is basically the inability to regulate your heart rate. It's a rapid increase with just regular like walking and going up and down the stairs which is very frustrating for people that were active or athletic. So put that into perspective and think, okay, if we can't get rid of these things, but I can take a vaccine that will keep these things from possibly happening. You're probably, if if you have any of the the conditions that I spoke of, you're probably better off pre-treating your body, getting it ready, maybe even checking for antibodies before you get your vaccine and then getting vaccinated. There, the long haulers come in what I call a, a pattern of threes, which means the first wave is your your um, cough, your fever, and then your second wave is new symptoms like that heart stuff, the dysautonomia, which peaks and for months, and then it might taper off, and then a month after the infection, it'll keep, it'll start persisting, and then a third wave is, gives you the rashes, the muscle pain, the new sensitivities, the brain fog, the fatigue, and that's the worst, right? Because it just gradually gets worse. And at four months, it just keeps going and you don't understand why you're not getting better because your body, in theory, should have cleared the bug. And I'm going to tell you a little story about um, SARS-1, because, again, this is this is a virus that's almost well, not almost identical, but very similar. And in SARS-2, right, which is COVID-19. And in I'm going to read you a little bit of the history, but in 2004, um, Harvey Moldovsky was a neuroscientist in the University of Toronto. He got a call from an old friend. Um, and a year earlier, SARS had briefly spread from Asia to Canada, um, infecting about 251 people, mostly healthcare workers in the Toronto area. But 12 months later, 50 of them were still not well. So John Padkai, a consultant at Toronto General wanted to find out why. So this is this is what the phone call was about, right? They needed to figure out why these people, were still not well. So what they later found out was that this is what was considered post SARS syndrome, similar to what we would call post COVID syndrome or long hauler syndrome. And Moldowski identified soon that they were suffering um, and not sleeping. And he suspected that it was with with the other symptoms was a sign of widespread inflammation, but he needed to prove it in the brain. So scientists in China, finally reported that they discovered fragments of the SARS virus genetic material in brain cells in patients with post SARS syndrome. So for Moldovsky, this finding was explained much of their their symptoms, right? he said, we know there's a direct connection from our nose to our brain called the olfactory nerve. And this is probably how the virus got directly into the circulation of the brain. I believe these viral fragments were interfering with how their brains were functioning, which would explain the poor sleep quality and other issues. Now, What I say to that is the olfactory nerve is responsible for smell. We know that COVID-19 affects taste and smell pretty significantly. Again, it goes back to the question, is this going up the olfactory nerve, creating inflammation and creating what we would call neurologic dysfunction in people that are more prone to it? I know lots of long haulers that are not getting their taste and smell back. Um, I know lots of long haulers that are still fatigued. They can't regulate their heart rate, and they have these other issues. So, just to kind of you know put that out there, we're going to talk about some COVID nineteen findings as well. But this is not a new thing. Um, post SARS syndrome. This is basically post SARS two syndrome. Um, so, you know this is this is something that's not new to us. That small amounts of pathogens can linger beyond the reach of the immune system in what we call pockets of the body or reservoirs, and they could be partially responsible for a whole host of post-infectious syndromes. So COVID being one of them, we think. Um, Chronic Lyme, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME, have long been speculated to be what we would call post-viral or post-infectious or inflammatory. So that's where the SIRS name comes from. It's chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And it can happen to molds, chronic infections, um, COVID being one of them. So the this again this phenomenon is not new right we know that infectious organisms can persist in tissues and we can't get rid of it so no matter how much you know we give them people antibiotics antivirals we can't get to the root of where it's hiding just like chronic lyme they make these like biofilms these lipid bilayers that are all around them that you can't get that you can't penetrate past so when you you have to use drugs that get into the into the nerves and can maybe pass the blood-brain barrier in order to get to this inflammation from COVID. Um, so there is evidence that suggests that we can find COVID-19 in 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 other places. So, for example, um, it's been capable; it's been detected in the tissues in the brain, um, the testes after a long period of time in the semen. So, and we do know that. It can linger in these sites for prolonged periods of time. And there are a lot of men that are complaining of um, testicular tenderness post-COVID. So, you know, if your body isn't clearing this genetic material and then you create these reservoirs, all we're doing is creating what I would call a prolonged inflammatory period that we might not be able to get, you know, get rid of. If we could trigger the immune system in other ways to create antibodies to get rid of the bug before we even got it, that would be huge. So, you know, that's that's one angle that I wanted to address. The other thing I wanted to address is that it's not just COVID-19 that's sitting there. There's a lot of research out there that says that COVID-19 itself can be triggering viruses that have lain dormant in the body for years or even decades. So again, let's think about this for a minute. You have someone that had Lyme. It was able to kind of go run away and hide, and it sits there until the immune system is knocked down enough where it feels the need or it can survive and come out and create problems. So this is what we presume is happening, you know, the sudden sudden appearance of allergies that were previously not suffered um, sudden appearance of food sensitivities, gut digestive issues, muscle and joint pains. Um, it just suggests that the virus is triggering one an autoimmune reaction. In some cases, again, are you fighting yourself because your immune cells are, are really on overdrive? Or are we Um, And are we activating a latent Lyme or a herpes virus or um, even activating lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or MS? So all these things that make us attack our own body. Um, So I've seen new Lyme and autoimmune thyroid storm and severe autoimmune allergic dermatitis from COVID. Um, I've seen some of these from the vaccine. And the real question that I get is, well, if I can get it from the vaccine, why would I take the chance? And what I have to say is that when I've seen it from the vaccine, for example, COVID vaccine, I have seen autoimmune thyroid disease from the vaccine, um, an overactive thyroid storm. Over time, a couple months, that dissipated and it goes away because your body stops making quite so many immune cells. When it's due to COVID-19, the bug hides and it's able to evade, or detect, evade detection of the immune system in which case you cannot get rid of it. It's much more difficult once it's in there and kind of settles in. So to you, I would say, get your body up to where it needs to be and then start to, it, to check your antibodies and then take the vaccine. Um, because you don't want to have these other side effects from prolonged COVID-19. So um, we did, I did briefly mention that women mostly suffer from this long COVID or long hauler syndrome. There is, um, at the UCLH clinic, it says 66% of the patients are female, Um, and a lot of them have actually previously been reported with what we would call chronic fatigue syndrome, which I like to call the propensity for nerve involvement, right? It's just, it tells me that your nerves are more irritable, your muscles are more inflamed, so you're going to be more prone to getting these chronic infections and chronic diseases. What came first, the chicken or the egg, the bug or the CFS, chronic fatigue, who knows? Um, we also know that women are more prone to autoimmune diseases. So again, we have this autoimmune propensity and then you throw COVID-19 on top of that and you get all these symptoms. Um, so, you know, you can have these long COVID symptoms like the dys- dysautonomia and blood clots and inflammation. So if you're female and you're thinking about not getting the vaccine and you have any kind of autoimmune issue i would really think about it long and hard to see if you can actually get your body to a point where you can tolerate the vaccine as opposed to getting one of these new variants especially um because they're getting harder and harder to get rid of and delta unfortunately is not the only one out there right we have more in the wings just kind of waiting and that's the problem with this so we're going to talk about a couple of myths too in a few minutes um, to dispel and then what i think we should do moving forward with maybe our vaccine so um okay so let's talk about the third pathway of of I guess inflammation and that's the covid-19 affecting what we would call the endothelium. The endothelium is the lining of your of your blood vessels essentially. And what that does is when you inflame just think about a pipe when you inflame the pipe it gets a build up on it and when you get a build up on it it's almost like spongy and then the hole gets smaller. And when you have all these vessels that used to have a good flow through them and now they have this restriction creates lots of problems, right? You have heart attack, you have other vascular structures that are affected. Um, so like the new, new onset of blood clots, new onset of heart disease and inflammatory asthma, all these parts are tiny, tiny little blood vessels and we're finding that they get inflamed and they they get clots in them and they get they get goo, goo for like a better way to describe it because of the COVID bug. So, that's a whole nother subset of, of what we would call um, problems of getting COVID-19. So there is, um, where was this? This is University of Copenhagen that proposed in, in long COVID patients that the body was attacking its own vascular structures. And it did say leading to blood clots, heart disease, and lung inflammation or asthma. Um, so, you know, this is definitely being studied and the data is suggesting that this is happening. Um, Again, we talked about the reactivation, but reactivation of herpes zoster virus or chickenpox um, has been seen. Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus have all been seen to be reactivated by COVID-19 infections. Um, So, you know, why is it reactivating? Because it's getting your immune system busy and then it has time to kind of come back to the surface. All right, the last thing that we know, or at least that I've come up with um, about COVID-19 is that it blunts what we call interferon signaling and interferon signaling is a very important part of the immune system which keeps the viruses in check it's basically the way they talk to each other um our cells talk to each other so without interferon um signaling you're basically you're you're not able to mount a good immune response Um, and then any bugs that are sitting dormant including COVID-19 can reactivate so again, that Epstein bar or that Lyme that's been sitting there when you don't have interferons um, signaling correctly, you can't fight it. So that's a big deal when we talk about um, inflammation and and new infection. And you know, obviously there's things that we can do to prevent this, the shot being one of them, but I love um, colloidal silver, I love biocidin, I love that quercetin. Um, We also love our glutathione for cellular detox. So these are all things, high-dose vitamin C, high-dose vitamin D, that can help to make the immune system work efficiently, to prevent the bug from keeping it at bay. We want it to do its job, right? We want it to keep kind of going after and what we call trolling for infection. And, and that doesn't always happen with COVID. Um, okay. So we we'll gonna switch gears for a minute. I hope that all made sense, guys. I know was a lot of information. But I want to dispel a couple of myths. And... So I think you know, myths got out there for a lot of reasons. I think people were primarily scared. Um, this all happened very quickly. And I wanna, I wanna kind of talk a little bit about the myths of, of the vaccination. The first one that I've heard of is infertility. And I will say that COVID-19, as I said, has been found in the te- testicles and can cause erectile dysfunction and testicular issues secondary to inflammation. Um, or binding to what we call ACE2 receptors, which again, can create problems down the line. This is from COVID-19. So again, the risk of COVID-19 affecting fertility in men is really much, much higher because there's really no risk of infertility with COVID-19 in men um, with the COVID vaccine. We're talking about females. The way this came about basically is the, um, which there's there's no basis to back it up, by the way is that there was the assumption because part of something called syncytin-1, which is part of the protein that's in the placenta, has a small piece of genetic code that is the same as the spike protein on the coronavirus, a very small portion. And what was proposed is that our body would make antibodies to this um, syncytin-1 and that we would basically fight our placenta, right? Causing loss of pregnancies and other issues. However, if this were the case getting COVID-19 and making antibodies to COVID-19 those antibodies are the same antibodies they would be fighting the placental tissue as well which is not occurring okay so you know there's been no data to suggest that getting COVID-19 increases um, miscarriages or fertility issues and then by the same token everybody that's um, gotten the COVID-19 vaccine In all the studies, nothing has come up about um, placental destruction and loss of um, fertility or miscarriages. So, you know, this completely what I would call theoretical risk was completely disproven in the trials. And I I highly recommend getting vaccinated, even pregnant, because the side effects of not getting vaccinated and getting COVID-19 far outweigh the risks of getting the vaccination. you know, the antibody response for the vaccine, obviously we can expect, but, you know, you would, natural infection, you can get that same response and then you can't get rid of it. Okay, so I think that's really key. Um, so let's see here. Men. So to address this issue of men um, on testicular function, I think that we, it's really important to understand that COVID 19. Is, was found in sperm, or so it was found in the testicles and in semen. And there has been no evidence to suggest that the vaccination does anything negative to testicular function. Um, it's far wor- more worrisome that we're finding the infection um, in the testicles and affecting could that can could affect normal sperm function. And there's been numerous reports, like I said earlier, of testicular scrotal pain after getting COVID-19. So again, the inflammatory response much worse um, off than just getting the vaccination. And this this is um, this data that I pulled out is from a reproductive endocrinologist at MU Healthcare System. And you know his suggestion is to absolutely get the vaccination because he's seen so many um, men impacted by COVID nineteen. And again, that microvasculature, right? You have tiny little blood vessels that that feed into the whole system so lack of supply and then covid sitting into the, in the testicles affecting sperm production is a big deal so again that to me is another huge reason not to get um thrown off by the vaccine just to get the vaccine and and kind of go from there so um let's talk a little bit about money and well let's talk a little bit about the world first of all so the world, people think this is just an American issue right now. And I've heard it in my office a lot. And again, I'm not, I don't want to make this about politics because it, to me, it's not about politics, but I've had a couple trips planned in the last couple of months. And, you know, before we were talking about masks again and, and everything else um, and Delta, we, I was watching these countries shut down. I had one trip in Africa that was closed due to, to issues with Delta and, and COVID I have another had another tried to trip do a trip to Hungary that was canceled. So again, when we think about this situation, this is a global issue, right? This is something that's affecting the entire world, and this isn't isolated to the United States. And for a lot of people, they said that it, this all happened too quickly. And I, to to them, I would say, at this point, more data has been received on on this vaccine. Than was ever received on polio or any of the other vaccines that were put out there, and yes, there were issues, but we're not seeing the, the issues to that extent like we were you know when we first started um, vaccinating and I think we need to understand that at this point, you know the tests and the studies that have been done are so far superior to anything that's ever been done before that we need to kind of look at that crit- crit- critically and Again, I realize that there's a problem with looking at money versus data, right? And this is where I kind of want to talk about because the world, the United States is, I'm going to put in air quotes, but it's doing a, a pretty good job of vaccinating compared to the rest of the world. And I would say the the less developing world um, has huge problems with getting vaccinations and getting vaccine for that matter. And here's the problem. If we vaccinate the United States, we're such a global market that if the rest of the world is not vaccinated, there's no end to the number of what we would call um variants right because we we keep continuing to pass this on and the you can't keep your borders closed so there's constantly you know the global marketplace is moving in and out very rapidly, so again, we can't live this life of closure after closure after closure so we owe ourselves and the world to at least do something to keep this under control. And I feel like the United States has, a, um, has a, an onus to help the rest of the world because we ha- are able to produce so much more vaccine. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Moderna and Pfizer, when they first created their vaccinations, said they were pretty much gonna be doing this as a nonprofit. Now, I will tell you that even though they're selling their vaccines at a low, relatively low price, they're still at about a 30% profit margin, even at selling them about $20 a piece. J&J is offering them pretty much free, but they're banking on this being the first wave and the emergency phase of the vaccine. And then their hope is, is that um, for the second, the second rollout, meaning that the booster shot that they're going to start making some extra money. Um, that's where they're going to get their money. So they are um, charging anywhere from four thirty to ten dollars for its two dose vaccines. Um, Pfizer is um, basically they're they're not charging the real commercial prices for their vaccine and they're not making a substantial profit. Okay, but. Everybody around these pharmaceutical companies, and trust me, take it from me where I use needles every day, glass vials, needles, syringes, um, they are absolutely extorting the market and there's massive shortages in these productions and they're making a fortune. So let's talk a little bit about um, vaccine developers in the United States and how they're distributed worldwide. There is a group called Covax, which Covax is um, vaccine developers that have agreed to give doses to Covax, which is the not for nonprofit. Um, it's a global initiative to ensure low-income countries have access to COVID vaccines. And Pfizer and and um, and BioNTech, for example, have agreed to provide 40 million of doses, 40 million doses this year to Covax, with AstraZeneca providing at least 170 million doses. But here's the problem: not all countries belong to Covax. There's a ton of countries that cannot afford to produce vaccine, nor can they afford to vaccinate their their patient or their um their population. So, you know, the current amount of vaccine and we know that this is not going to be the last shot. So unless we figure out how to do worldwide distribution, we're never going to get this under control. And I think that's kind of where this is. This might be maybe where it's getting missed. And again, I know I know that everybody's making money off of this stuff. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies have been doing this for 50, 60 years and are actually hundreds of years for that matter. But, you know, when you think about it might just, this might deflect away from the amount of money they're charging for a drug prescription and for a little while, but we all know that they're still making money and we're gonna talk about how much money they're making. The question is, is how are we going to get this into the hands of the other countries that need it? And so, you know, basically, these companies are waiting for more mutations to occur. And to me, that's really what's going on here. The delay in getting the world vaccinated is just giving it time to get new variants. And that's really where their money is just going to keep perpetuating. So. Again, that's where um, Pfizer is hoping to make its money, right? They're looking to make it for their second, their second go around. So you know they're already starting clinical trials on the um, on the boosters. So you know we know that, and more variants are coming in the spring and or in the winter rather. And we know that they're behind this Delta. So I'm sure at some point it's going to be a flu slash COVID vaccine every winter, but. Let's talk about how these companies made their money. So Pfizer did not accept any U.S. government development subsidy, um, but secured a $2 billion deal in the first year, last year to supply, uh, let's see, doses to the country before the COVID vaccine was cleared, and they reaped $26 billion in sales this year. $26 billion. And that's, quote, on, at cost, right? Moderna... They did um, take an estimate $4.1 billion in U.S. support, but they expect to report about a $19 billion um, in vaccine, sa- vaccine sales in 2021. And next year, they're projected to be at least $36 billion. So, again, this money that they're making is astronomically large, right? Even though we're talking about them doing this at a, a nonprofit or a, a low rate. So these middle-income nations that are not eligible for free doses under the global vaccine distribution effort, um, how are they getting vaccines? Well, they're buying them and getting hit with massive ranges of prices from the United States. And unfortunately, those prices are much, much higher than what we pay here for our doses. So, for example, Colombia, it's, well, it's estimated that, um, let's see. Moderna was charging $31 to the world market, Pfizer was charging 14, and J&J was charging nine. So Colombia is spending an estimated $1 billion to immunize the population. They agreed to pay almost 300 million, they agreed to pay almost 300 million for 10 million Moderna doses, the equivalent of $30 a dose. Okay, so that's what I just said, 30 dollars to $31 a dose. Which may include logistics and expenses according to the government finance ministry documents. However, in the United States, they're charging $15 a dose. So they're charging these non-COVAX countries double the, the vaccination cost just to have, just to provide it to them. So to me that's crazy, right? I mean, this is just we're trying to get this global vaccination so that we can open up the world and now again the pharmaceutical companies that are supposed to not be making a profit at least off of this at this time selling at double the double the price that they're selling to the united states it just it's to me that's ludicrous and that's really where we're not talking about um bringing the world together to make this a world global um effort so that to me that's probably the biggest thing to talk about how's the affordability of these vaccines, inhibiting us from opening up this world. So I hope that makes sense to you guys. I know we have a couple minutes, so I'm going to go into a little bit of the Delta variant, but I hope that makes sense. You know, there to me, there's things that you can do to really look at the way that this world is responding and, and maybe, you know, make some commentary about how we're distributing as, as a, a global leader in vaccinations, how we're really not doing what we should do to get this out to everybody. Um, but two, it really is something to think about: pre-treating yourself before the vaccination, getting your body to a point where you can tolerate it, and really looking at the side effects and, and myths out there that are not real. Um, and understanding, I have heard a lot that this, you know, that it's too new, um, that we don't know what's going to happen down the line. And to those people, I would pr- put out there that the only reason to worry about that is um, for people that maybe have certain kind of cancers where where immune cells are involved and that would be the biggest thing to worry about there's no DNA um, incorporation so we're not worried about the DNA kind of creating mutations down the line and honestly I presume that this isn't going to last us much longer than a year and change um, and that we're going to need boosters of different variant um, spike proteins anyway so I would encourage you to think about that stuff before you make your make your final decision so let's talk about um, the delta variant and, and the AWHO was calling it the fastest and the fittest. I'm sure there'll be a new fastest and fittest behind it um, there's there's lambda I mean there's a couple others behind it and the numbers are rising in the United States obviously most of you know it's in all 50 states it's responsible for about eighty three percent of the coronavirus infections here now um, and Data suggests that the efficacy rates for the shots are as follows. So 67% for the J and J, um, 72 to 95 for Moderna, and 64 to 96% for Pfizer. And they are some pretty big ranges, guys, right? So think about what happens if you're in that 30 percentile that maybe your immune system just isn't strong enough or isn't gonna find it, um, and you're you're gonna get sick. So You know, obviously getting fully vaccinated gives you more than 50%, 60%, even almost 70% um, effectiveness and protection. So I would still say that you're better off. However, um, unfortunately, this mask talk is probably necessary because the, 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 (laughs) the way that the virus is spread, especially in the Delta strain, is your viral load goes up about two and a half fold from what the alpha strains were doing. So what that means is you have a higher viral load earlier in the course of disease. What that means is you're gonna test positive sooner and you're gonna spread disease sooner. So that means asymptomatic people that can have a pretty high viral load can spread the disease. And I think that's really important because you can be, again, you have that 20 to 30% chance with the vaccinated people of still passing on Delta strain of COVID. Um, so think about that when you don't want to put on the mask and trust me, I don't want to put on the mask either. Um, but when you don't want to put on the mask, you know, again, if we don't start to distribute the vaccine more readily and figure out how to get these new strains, these new boosters out there, then this mask, unfortunately, like I said, there's however many more behind Delta strain, um, to deal with. Right. So I think it's very important. And again, I was. On the fence initially, I will say about getting vaccinated, but when you look at the disease progression, um, especially with these long haulers, I, I I do not. you don't wanna be a long hauler. Then um, you don't want this bug stuck in your system. So Delta, they say it spreads about 50% faster than Alpha, um, 50% more contagious. Again, you, if you're in a party or a group setting, it's gonna infect, Alpha would infect maybe two and a half other people. Um, That same environment, we're talking about three and a half to four people. So it's much more contagious. And the symptoms are different. And I think I briefly mentioned this in the beginning and it's affecting more of the younger population. Um, So children and adults under 50 were two and a half times more likely to become affected with Delta according to a study, um, a recent study in in the UK and i think that's important right because one we don't have anything for kids under 12 and two um previously we really kind of attributed severe illness to those that were older or had immunocompromised or had other issues and that's not really seeming to be the case with this strain um it is more of a cold like syndrome so we're talking about starting with a sore throat getting a stuffy nose feeling like you have a sinus infection um, really, really stuffy for you for a couple of days, or even just a little drippy, like you have um, some allergies. And that is key, um, because people are so trained at this point to think about loss of taste or smell, fever, um, body aches, and this is not that. Um, I will tell you the cases that I've seen, none of them have had any of those symptoms. It's all um, not the fever, it's more just like the nose, stuffiness, sore throat, and feeling like they have a cold and they need a side you know, they have a sinus infection. So um, it looks like we'll be able to get a good mRNA vaccine um, for the new S protein or even for the delta strain. it doesn't seem like it's out of the possibility. And I will tell you that it should happen pretty quickly. Um, I actually think before the end before the winter we'll have some kind of a booster um, readily available to tack on with a flu shot, like I said. And, you know, again, it should have the same safety and efficacy as the rest of the um, vaccines that are already released. Um, There's no different and nothing like that. So, you know, just to kind of give you a little bit of an example of how contagious this is. In Israel, there were, um, so Israel was, or not Israel, sorry, Australia. Australia was clear um, and their borders have been closed for a long time. And there was reports of a birthday party where every unvaccinated person got sick, and there were stories of people getting infected from literally five to 10 seconds of a stranger walking by them. So you know this to me is super interesting, because Australia, like I said, has done really well in their numbers. they've kept it really low. Um, they were limiting who was coming in the country, and the delta variant, because it's so contagious, they had a hard time keeping um, that the virus in check so now they're seeing we're seeing completely parts of australia locking down again you know i'm sure some of you saw sydney locked down and what this tells us is the delta variant is moving much faster um and makes it much more difficult to um what we would call track or trace um people that have been exposed because really they're just walking past you in a room they're in the same train you know they're not it's not really a direct contact so to me it's a wake-up call that the fastest path to getting normal is really figuring out how to vaccinate the world. Um, and, and coming to terms with the fact that if you do feel like it's, it's not good for you, what can you do for your body to make it so that it will work for you and that it won't make you sick? Um, because the other, like I said, the other things are completely myths. Um, so in Israel, another company that was doing, or another company, another country that was doing really well, um, there was an outbreak of delta where 50 percent of the adults tested f- positive were fully vaccinated people um so you know again we have this hole in vaccination where um this delta strain is a little bit different and your immune system may not find it completely perfectly so you know this is something to think about when you're going out and about and i know some of these stores are now making the masks mandated again and I think that it's important to understand that even though we're asking to get you va- to get vaccinated, um, that doesn't mean you don't have to wear your mask, unfortunately. So it's gonna come down to how well we get these boosters out there. And if we're able to um, keep up with this S protein change or the spike protein change. So the other thing is too, the Delta is gonna settle into these areas of what we would call lower vaccinated pocket. Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Wyoming um, are the states that I came up with that are the lowest vaccination rates with where we're finding these delta pockets. Delta pockets in itself are fine, except the areas around these pockets when even the vaccinated people, if there's a 20 to 30 percent spread rate, you're going to get these pockets with what we would like I would call like a sunburst pattern where you're getting these these um, sparse, positive outside of these pockets. So you're going from like a, a, a vaccination poor area and it just kind of comes out like a sunburst to a milder um a, a less amount of people that are getting positive, but still enough to make it overwhelm our systems. Um, so just I did get a data today. I know for those of you listening that are locally, Bucks County, our area is about 80% vaccinated at this time. Um, but still recommending indoor mask wearing. So, you know, again, I know we're up to um, 70% of the American population vaccinated, which again, at least two doses um, of the adult population, I should say, vaccinated. And the other question I get from a lot of people is kids, and I'll I'll end on this, and everyone's asking if I think you should get your kid vaccinated. And I would say this, I would say there's, unless they don't do well with vaccines, and, and there are a select group of kids that do not, Um, which we can do things to help them be okay with it, I would say that I would get my kid 12 or over-vaccinated. One, for quality of life. Two, there's really no data to suggest any kind of reproductive issues. And three, if you can control the inflammation prior and test them for antibodies prior to testing, hydrate, sleep, even if they take a day off, I would absolutely recommend it. Um, So on that note, guys, I will leave it till next week. Um, This is Dr. Lori Gerber with Anti-Aging Unraveled. And I did get a bunch of questions. I will try to answer them um, on, I will actually put them up on uh, Facebook and Instagram and answer them online. And just shoot me any questions at info at mydrlori.com and just go to my website for more information on my wellness program. We can do just suggestions or we can do full lab work with um, inflammatory panels and everything. All right, guys, have a great evening and I will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.